a while back, Dave asked, hey, when you're in town, would you teach for our you know, uh, series on the Spirit? And I said, absolutely. That's an easy yes. Life in the Spirit has changed my relationship to Jesus. It has radically changed our church back home. We did a very similar series on the Spirit, I think, four years ago now. And uh, when we tell the story of our church, people regularly have before and after language. It wasn't a series for us. It was an open door to a whole new experience of life with God. So that was an easy yes. And then a week or two ago, I called him up and we we're getting near. And I said, hey, what do you want me to teach on? Is it I'm thinking prophecy, kind of right in my sweet spot or healing or something really cool? And he said, tongues. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. A lot for our former friendship. Um, and so here I am, all the way from up north, to talk to you about tongues. And I, I say that not tongue, I almost said tongue in cheek, but I stopped myself. I say that not, not because I'm down on it at all, it's very much a part of my prayer life with Jesus, but because I know this is an emotionally loaded topic for some of you, due to abuse, due just to the wackiness that often comes with it, due to just the unfamiliarity. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. And that's fine. And I know we come here from all over the map. So if it goes really badly, the regular guy will be back next week. <laughs> In the meantime, Acts chapter 2. Let's begin here and then move toward 1 Corinthians 14, where you were at last week, which is the most in-depth teaching in the New Testament on this manifestation of the Spirit. But first, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, that was a Jewish feast, penta meaning five, it was 50 days after Passover. This is where we get the moniker of Pentecostal from this story that we are about to read. They, the apprentices of Jesus, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like, and notice it's not a one-on-one -on -one comparison, it's like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what, again, notice the language, seemed to be kind of like tongues of fire, that's Hebrew imagery, that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now pause right there. The key word is all. If you are new to the Bible, if you go back and start in Genesis chapter 1 and start to read through the library of Scripture, one of the first things you notice is that up until this story that we're in the middle of right now, the Holy Spirit was on a select few, Moses or King David or the prophet Isaiah or a, a random judge, Deborah or somebody like that. It was not on all. This is a new epoch in the story of God, a whole new moment, a whole new chapter in the story where now the Spirit of God is not just on Moses or Isaiah or this king or that prophet. It is on all of the apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and, keep reading, began to speak in other, and my Bible says the NIV tongues. If you have an IV, NIV, notice there's a footnote there down to the bottom. It can also be translated other languages as the Spirit enabled them, not like the Rosetta Stone or a class in high school, but as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So most of the Jews, if you know the story of the exile, were still outside of the land, but all sorts of Jews were in town for this feast from all over the Greco-Roman world. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. 
utterly amazed. They, they said, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, that was to the east. Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, that's a thousand miles to the east. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, from the north, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, down in the south, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors all the way from Rome, that was way over to the west. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or our own languages. Amazed, and notice the language, perplexed. If you feel that way this morning, you're in good company. It's been that way for a very long time when this aspect of the Spirit. They asked one another, what does this mean? Now, before we get into what does this mean, all I want you to notice from this story is the followers of Jesus are filled with the Spirit, and immediately what happens? They start speaking in tongues or other languages. And it's not just here. Turn over to Acts chapter 10, a few pages to the right. If you know the story of Acts, chapter 10 is the fulcrum point. There is all sorts of racial dynamics here we don't have time to go into, but this is the first story where the gospel goes out from a Hebrew-centric community to Gentiles or non-Jewish people. If it was not for this story, most of us in the room would not be in the room right now. And at the end of the story, we read this. Take a look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, and in context, that's speaking the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to non-Jewish Jewish people, the Holy Spirit, again, came on, what's the word? All who heard the message. The circumcised believers, which is code for Jewish, it's kind of a weird way to refer to yourself, but okay, who had come with Peter, I'm going to start with that actually next time. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit Oh man, so much of me wants to go off there about how there's a gift, singular, not gifts, but gift. And what is the gift? The Spirit Himself had been poured out even on Gentiles. Notice the racial tension there. Even, wait, even on non-Jewish people? Yes. For they heard them, notice, speaking in tongues and praising God. There it is again. They are filled, followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately what happens? They start speaking in tongues. One more, turn over to chapter 19. A few more pages to the right. Verse 1. While Apollos, who was a teacher at the time, was at Corinth. Now, this is well into the Greco-Roman world, up to the north and the east. Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi, took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some apprentices, and we assume of Jesus. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this is a bit wacky. They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We missed that podcast. We were out of town. So Paul asked then what baptism did you receive? Notice for him, there's an assumption that life in the Holy Spirit is a key part of your relationship to Jesus. John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. If you know that story, it's a different baptism. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when this is basically means they now are, they become followers of Jesus in this moment. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they what? Spoke in tongues and 
prophesied. And the story goes on. There it is again. Followers of Jesus, in this case brand new, are filled with the Spirit and immediately they start speaking in tongues. Now, let's take a step back. What do we learn from these few stories? Well, for sure we learn that when the Holy Spirit comes on people or whatever preposition of your choice is into people, one of the byproducts is they speak in these tongues. More on that in a few minutes. It's not the byproduct. There are 22 stories in Acts alone about people coming to follow Jesus, and we only read about these tongues in three of the 22. So you just read every story in the book of Acts about speaking in tongues. You're an expert on the subject now. So my point is, it happens, people are filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately start speaking in tongues, but it doesn't always happen. On that note, there are three teachings on tongues that we flat out just set aside and say no to. And for those of you who are new to the American church subculture, this will sound a bit weird. For those of you that grew up in it or have some time spent in it, it will ring a bell. The first is that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. And we just say no to that, right? It's not biblical. It's not in the New Testament. It is a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in you. It is not the. The second is from a more hardline, fringe, Pentecostal group in the church that says if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. And as crazy as that sounds, it's actually not that small of a group of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who argue that. And then on the flip side, to, in the other direction, is a third teaching that we just say no to, and that is, is that tongues is not for today, is the language that used, is used by people. This comes from a theological stream called cessationism, which is the idea that the manifestations of the Spirit that we read about all through the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians and the New Testament and early church history um, all ceased, hence the name cessationism, with the writing of the New Testament. That was for then, not for now. It was for kind of the early church, this fledgling move of Jesus. And now that we have the writings of the New Testament, we no longer need all the miraculous stuff. Now, I don't have time to get into all of that. Theologically, short version, it has essentially over the last 20 years been debunked at an academic level or a scholarship level. There are a few hang-ons and a few, one from California that a few people know about, but functionally, it is still the default setting for most churches in the U.S. outside of the charismatic and Pentecostal stream. And again, if you're new to the whole church thing, this is all Christianese, subculture, insider, nerd language. You don't need to remember any of it. It's kind of better if you don't know and just say Jesus a lot and do that, all right? So if you want to know more about all of that, ask Dave. My point is, these are three teachings that are very, like, in the pop theology world float around, and we just, with a lot of humility, say, no, that's not the right reading of the story and the New Testament. Now, we just set that aside as unhelpful. But if that's not what the New Testament teaches about these tongues, well, what does the New Testament have to say on the subject? For that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Um, You were here last week with Dave and that excellent teaching on prophecy, and I am so grateful for this passage of Scripture that we are about to read, not all of, but the bulk of. This uh, is long, it's complex, it's in-depth, we don't have time for the whole thing, 
but this is a gold mine for prophecy and for this manifestation of tongues. Now, a few things you need to know about chapter 14 before we just walk through the text. First is this chapter is a compare and contrast between tongues and prophecy. So you worked through the chapter last week with a focus on prophecy. This week, the plan is to reread the same portion of Scripture, but this time around with a focus on tongues. That said, Paul's emphasis, it's a bit tricky, his emphasis here is on prophecy, not on tongues, and his basic thesis, that like he's a bit lawyer-like and he has a case to make, and it's that prophecy is way more important in the life of the church and even in your own apprenticeship to Jesus than tongues is. So he comes off, if you just jump in and read it like we are about to, a bit negative on tongues, but he's not actually down on it. Just it's easy to misread. Disclaimer there. Second, in chapters 12 to 14 of this letter, and this is what this is, not a theology textbook, this is a letter, it's, and we only have one side of it, we don't know what's on the other side, it's kind of like eavesdropping on one side of a phone conversation, like you have to make up bits and pieces a little bit, but he's dealing with the weekly gathering for you, this space right here, not with your kind of one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus in the morning and your Chemex or out on a hike or whatever your style. It, we know Jesus would be into Chemex. Can we just agree on that? Um, or whatever your thing is. So keep that in mind as you interpret it. And finally, and this is key, please listen carefully. He's dealing with a church, he's writing to a church that has the exact opposite problem of your church and mine. And again, I'm not a part of your community, but I feel like I know you well enough. Our churches are very similar. My guess is that your church is a bit similar to mine in that most people don't yet speak in tongues, even in private, never from a microphone on Sunday. And the problem that he's dealing with is a church where most people do speak in tongues, not only in private, but in public, in the weekly gathering, and it was wild. I mean, read the story. It was wild, out of control, spasmodic, no order. There's a line at the end of chapter 14 where he writes, everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way. Your church is a bit like mine. We kill it at that last line. We're like <laughs> fitting and orderly. We don't need that line of scripture. We have it down. My point is, your church, and the same is true as mine, is coming at this conversation from the exact opposite experience. Does that make sense? So again, if he sounds a bit negative, he's beating up on a problem that you don't have yet. Hopefully after my teaching, you will have that problem. But <laughs> for Dave to deal with. Um, on that note, let's work through the chapter. I forewarn you, it's a bit technical, but there is gold in here. So let's just walk through it, and then at the end, we'll take a deep breath, step back, and think about what it all means for you and me and Dave's cleanup next week. Chapter 14, verse 1. I love the opening line. Follow the way of love. And eagerly desire... And the word there, eagerly desire, it's where we get the word zealous or zealot. It's actually the same word that's translated to covet. Like it's the one form of good coveting in all of the New Testament. Covet, ache for, want so bad that you feel pain in your soul. What? Gifts of the Spirit and especially prophecy. Now that phrase, gifts of the Spirit, or some of your translations have spiritual gifts, is one word in Greek, the original language of Paul, pneumatikos, from this word pneuma, which is the Greek word for the Spirit. 
Because of its how it's translated into English, the most common language, at least in the American English-speaking church, for all the stuff that the Spirit does is spiritual gifts or the gifts of the Spirit. And that's fine, but just a little insider stuff here. Gordon Fee, who if you don't know that name, is essentially the leading Pentecostal scholar in the world. He's up at Regent Seminary in Vancouver, B.C., and his work on 1 Corinthians in particular is phenomenal, and all spirit stuff in general is very top-drawer stuff. He makes a compelling case against that translation of spiritual gifts or the gifts of the Spirit. He translates this word pneumaticos as spirituals, which is the most literal, the closest thing. It's a really hard word to translate into English. There is no exact equivalent. He makes the case that the best equivalent we have is this word spirituals, or he, he can be translated spiritual things or spiritual people, or my personal favorite is the stuff the Spirit does. That's very lowbrow. I'm down with that. And um, I prefer that translation, and, and here's why. A lot of people hear spiritual gifts and what people think is spiritual superpowers. You know, it's like X-Men for Jesus or something like that. It's like you're filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden you're a Jesus mutant or something, and it's like, what's your spiritual gift? Oh, prophecy. Oh, that's cool. Mine's healing. What's yours? Miraculous powers. Nobody ever says that. That is, by the way, one of the main ones in the list in 1 Corinthians 12. Nobody ever, a lot of people mercy, a lot of people prophecy, a lot of people healing. Nobody just ever says miraculous powers. Oh yeah, show me. Bam! Or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. And again, I, I don't mean to be facetious, but I think the danger here is where people's mind goes is they think they either do or do not, quote, have one of the, quote, spiritual gifts. There are even online spiritual gift tests you can take to see which one you have, where they, it's like Enneagram for Charismatics, um, where they cobble together uh, a passage from 1 Corinthians 12, where there's a list of nine, as well as Ephesians 4, as well as Romans 12. Some people throw in Peter, other people don't, and they put together this master lift, list of apostle and prophet and prophecy and healing, and then you take a test and you figure out which gift you have. And again, there are some very intelligent, Jesus-loving spirit people who think that framework does a good job with the New Testament. But Fee and others and myself have come to the conclusion that these are manifestations of the Spirit. That's the language that's used by Paul if you just go back to chapter 12, manifestations of the Spirit, and they are open to all of Jesus' followers. So the way I read this, and again, this is just a lot of humility here, this is just the stuff the Spirit does through Jesus' followers who are open to it and available. So Jesus would prophesy, he'd heal the sick, he'd do a miracle once in a while, he had faith, he would show mercy, he would do justice. And I think when Jesus' followers have that same spirit on and in and through them, all of you have the potential to do all of it should you open up your mind and your body to the work of God in you and through you. Now, in chapter, two chapters before this, if you're reading through his letter, in chapter 12, Paul has a list of nine pneumaticos, which he has a synonym there for, he calls manifestations of the Spirit, or spirituals, or stuff the Spirit does. Here it is. It's the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing. There it is, miraculous power. If there's a, I want one, if there's one, I want that one. 
prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, our subject for today, and then the interpretation of tongues. So there's a list of nine. He doesn't say if it's exhaustive or not. He just has the list there embedded in the letter. And then in chapter 14, he circles back to that list and he says we are to eagerly desire, again, to want so bad that it hurts, all of the pneumaticos, all of that. You look at that list and you say, I want that, I want that, I want to pray for people and see them get better. I want to have a message of knowledge where I just know something about somebody. I want to prophesy over a server at a restaurant or somebody down front at church. I want to speak in tongues. I want to have an interpretation. I want to have faith. I, I want, and I want really bad to have all of that Jesus-y stuff in me and through me. And then he writes, but especially prophecy. So in Paul's mind, not all the manifestations are created equal. Prophecy is at the top of the list. And then in chapter 14, he goes into an in-depth discussion or kind of discursus on prophecy and tongues. Prophecy, because in his metric system, it's the most important of all of the manifestations of the Spirit, and tongues because it was the most problematic of all of the manifestations of the Spirit. So again, I get tongues. So happy to be with you today. Now, before we get into it and work through the chapter, what exactly are tongues? Some of you are new and you're like, this is so weird. Like, you mean tongues? Like, I have one? Like, some people don't have it or something? I don't get that. Well, the word that we translate tongues is this Greek word glossa. It's where we get the English word glossary. And honestly, it's not a weird word in the original language. It just means languages or other languages. In fact, it would be so much weird sounding if the English Bible in front of you just translated it as languages or other languages. Dr. Bill Mounts, who's one of the leading Greek scholars in the world, literally wrote the book on Greek that's used in most college textbooks and was on the NIV translation committee is just about 20 minutes north of me in the Portland area. And I shot him an email a while back and just said, why did you do this? Which you can do. Um, why did you, like, why did you, honestly, why did you translate this tongues rather than languages? And his answer was, it was really weird, but it's just interpretive tradition. Sometimes that happens in the lexicon of the church. People are just so used to one, one translation. It's just a little bit too much to move on from that. But my point is, this, all this word means, glossa, all it means is languages or other languages. So from now on, let me just swap that out and put in language or other languages. But it's not just any kind of language, as in, oh, Spanish or Russian or Chinese or whatever. Here's a working definition. Tongues or other languages are a form of prayer and praise you express to God in a language you do not understand. If you want a more academic definition, here's one from N.T. Wright, who um, is one of the leading Christian intellectuals in the world, a New Testament scholar who speaks in tongues. And he defines it as the gift of speech through which, which through making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. Hold that definition in your mental dock, and let's keep reading chapter 14. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one even knows what they're talking about. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. 
But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, Paul, again, Paul's main emphasis here is on prophecy, but on the backside, notice just five things that we pick up from Paul about these other languages. First, these other languages are spoken to God and not to other people, right? Quote, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. So prophecy is the exact opposite, right? Prophecy, you don't prophesy to God, you prophesy to somebody that you're praying over or somebody you're in a relationship with or somebody you have some kind of a word from God for. Secondly, these other languages don't make any sense, at least not to you. He writes, quote, no one understands them. Third, these languages edify the speaker or the prayer, but not the church as a whole. So, quote, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. That word edify is a bit of a churchy word. It's not in the kind of street slang of San Francisco. In Greek, it's a word from the construction industry, and it more literally means to construct something or to build something up. So just think about the cultural moment that we live in, of which your city is a harbinger of deconstruction, where everything is about tearing it down at an economic level, at a gender level, at a tradition level, at a religious level, tear down the system. And at some point, you're left with nothing but rubble. Am I right? Unless if it's followed by a reconstruction, what the New Testament would call edification, where you are reconstructed, and the imagery here is of a temple of God. You as a community and as an individual in that community are reconstructed into a temple to house the presence or the spirit, the empowering presence of God himself. Fourth, notice this these other languages are not nearly as important as prophecy. So in Paul's mind, there's a bit of a scale. Not all of the manifestations are of equal value to the church or even to you, and prophecy is way more important than these other languages. And finally, notice that ideally everybody should speak in these languages. Right, Paul is just pretty emphatic about it, pretty straight up. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, end quote. Again, this comes back to the panaticos, or are these spiritual superpowers that you either have or do not have, or are these manifestations of the Spirit that are available to all of Jesus' followers should God grace them with that? I prefer the latter. Other people disagree, but either way, you have to wrestle what, with what Paul is saying here. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, end quote. Now, that's a lot, but there's more. Keep reading. Next, Paul begins to argue for why we should only speak in these other languages in private, not in public, not in the Sunday weekly gathering, unless if there is an interpretation. Take a look at verse six, for all of you that were just dying to do that. Verse 6. Again, exact opposite problem, all right? Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, so let's say I come visit. Let's say I, John Mark Comer, show up from Portland, Oregon. I walk up on stage and I just, rather than teach, I just start speaking in tongues, right? What good will it be to you? What's the answer? Yet yeah, none or very little. 
unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or a prophecy or a word of instruction. That's what I'm doing right now, word of instruction on this manifestation of the Spirit. Even in the case, and he has a few metaphors, of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, and there's a play on words there, with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are even saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. There's no intimacy in the relationship. I have no idea what you're saying. You have no idea what I'm saying. So it is with you. Since you are eager for these pneumaticos, is the word in Greek, or these gifts of the Spirit, you want all this stuff, try to excel in those that edify or build up or construct the church for more of God's presence. Now, Paul has three metaphors for what speaking in these other languages in the weekly gathering without an interpretation again, for all of you that are really tempted to do that, what they are like. And the first is music. How will anyone know what tune is being played? So in order for music to make sense to your ear, rather than just come off like noise, it needs two things. So it needs some kind of a key. Is this thing on? Oh, boom. Okay, this is dangerous. <laughs> Fifth grade piano right here. So here's the key of F. If I can remember it. Not my skill, all right? There it is. And then it needs meter or rhythm. So if you know music theory, it needs 4-4, four, 3-4, four, 6-8, four, or whatever. So let me see. The last time I played piano, this goes out to all the 30-something white people. Oh, that's bad. Wait for it. Oh, so good. Oh, just feel 22 again. The uh, documentary is out. Oh, I was not done. So that's music, right? That's badly played music, but that's music. And how many of you love music? <laughs> Basically, to be human is to love music. So what happens when you don't have a key and you don't have meter is this. We call it jazz. Um, so I say that I, uh, I'm an introverted type one on the Enneagram, which means that a cocktail party with jazz is Dante's Inferno to me. That's just, I can't, I can't take it. I cannot take it. It's hell on earth. So that, that's just noise right? Without a key, without meter, music is just noise. And that's his first metaphor, that this, if there's no intelligibility to it or intelligence to it, it's just noise. His second metaphor is that of a trumpet in war. So in the ancient world, if you're a general on the field of battle, there's no radio or whatever is used now. I think it's still radio. You would conduct the battle as the general by way of a trumpet or a ram's horn. And a certain kind of blast or noise said charge. Another said retreat. 
Another said flank right. Another said flank left. You need to know what the sound is, right? Otherwise, what if you just hear this fuzzy kind of messy noise and you charge, you go forward when you should go back or you go back when you should go forward. And his point here is that actually, if you're doing this with no interpretation, not only is it noise and it's weird and it's chaotic, it's actually dangerous. We could go around the room, my guess is, in particular those of you that are from California at some level, and just tell stories of people that have been around the abuse of this manifestation of the Spirit and some kind of spiritual even or emotional trauma that it's done to you. I want to pray for you later on in this gathering. It's actually dangerous to your relationship with God or that of other people. Finally, his metaphor is foreign languages. So I assume the answer is yes. This is San Francisco. Can I get a volunteer really fast somewhere down here for whom English is a second language? You speak Chinese or something? Yes? Fantastic. Would you come up really fast? It's the one volunteer brave enough. Just, it'll be really fast. Here. Okay. What's your name? Arturo. Fantastic. Where are you from? Mexico. Fantastic. So, um, could you just say something in Spanish that is cool, but don't tell me what it is. Make it really short. Just like a sentence or two. Like a scripture or a prayer or just <laughs> something. Just go for it. You follow Jesus? I do. Fantastic. Padre nuestro que estás en los cielos. Beautiful. I, uh, I, I think I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'll say it more slowly. You say, no, it's okay. So, to all of the non-Spanish speakers in the room, did that just edify you? Did it, did it, well, I mean, it was cool sounding, for sure. Did it construct more space in your mind and body for the reality of God? No, not at all. No offense to you. It was fantastic. And it's because you don't speak that language. Beautiful language. What did you say? Uh, dear Father who is in heaven. Beautiful. The, the opening line of the Lord's Prayer. So that was, there was beautiful meaning in that, but nobody was edified unless if they spoke Spanish. Thank you. Done. Well done. Fantastic. So again, this is just basic math, but that's Paul's point. These other languages are exactly the same. If somebody doesn't know that language, it's just not helpful. And the key is here, there's no space for intimacy of relationship. You have to share a common language in order to get to the level of depth of relationship that we all crave. Are you getting Paul's idea, okay, his case? Now, he's, he's not done. Let's keep reading. Take a look at 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in tongues should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, listen to this, but my mind, and the word here is unfruitful. My mind's not engaged. It's not... Like, I'm not getting anything out of it. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with understanding. I will even sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer, meaning somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't even know what you're saying. You are giving thanks well enough but no one else is edified. Again, three things that we pick up on the backside here about tongues as we continue more. Also, 
um, number whatever it was, yeah, one more. If you speak in other languages, Paul writes that you should pray for an interpretation. So if you have this and you offer it to God and you're in a weekly gathering, you should pray for interpretation. Again, he's not writing about when you're just alone with the Chemex and the white wall and Jesus or whatever your morning routine is. Secondly, when you speak in these other languages, it's like your mind is in neutral or the word he uses is unfruitful. Now, some people, for those of you that are curious, think like, what exactly are these glossa, these other languages? Some people think they are other human languages, and there's all sorts of antidotal evidence for that. Um, I don't have that story out of my own life, but I have a lot, I've, I keep hearing stories like that. Just recently, um, I was with my friend Todd, and he was at a prayer gathering in London with people kind of from all over the world, and it was not a very large gathering of prayer. And at one point, somebody who was a Brit started to pray in her prayer language. And there was a couple in the back of this prayer meeting that just immediately broke out in tears. And they stopped the prayer meeting and said, wait, are, it was a small, not very large gathering. Are you okay? Or is everything all right? And they said, yeah, don't you know what you are saying? And the person who was praying said, I have no idea what I'm saying. And, she, and they said, well, you're speaking French. You know that, right? And this person said, no, I, I'm British. I hate the French. Um, no, they didn't say that. <laughs> they didn't say that. Uh, they said, no, I had no idea. I've, never, I've actually never been to France, and I had no idea that was French. And this couple was three weeks away from moving to France to plant a church, and they were racked in that day by insecurity over the move. And they said, everything you just said gave deep peace to our heart that we're making the right decision. Right? So there's all, like, that's one story. Just, again, for, if you have friends that grew up in this kind of a church tradition, go around, ask questions. You will hear stories like that a lot. Other people think they are not human languages, but angelic languages, based on Paul's line earlier in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm absolutely nothing. Other people, like linguistics, um, like linguistic analysis has actually been done on like a large sample body of tongues of, through recordings. And some linguists have said, actually, they are not languages at all. There's not enough grammar or syntax to make sense of it. Um, my son, who's down here, was just debriefing with me. I hope I can tell the story, buddy. And he just was filled with the Spirit in May. We were on a trip in Ireland, and Darren, my friend, prayed for him, who's teaching here next week, and had a radical encounter with God, and immediately started to speak in tongues. And we have not really talked about it much since then. And we were on Highway 1 somewhere, and uh, he just started speaking in tongues. I thought, oh my gosh. And he said, yeah, Dad, it's so weird. Mine kind of sounds like a cross, be a cross between like mandibles and French. So I'm kind of like a French ant or something like that, <laughs> right? And he, we have no idea. Is that a language? Is that a remote dialect from something that we're not familiar to? My guess is that it's a mix of all of the above, human, angelic, not even a technical language at all. Whoever is right on that, the point is here in Paul, you, the prayer, have no idea what it is that you're saying. Now, it's not like you're in a trance, right, where all of a sudden your eyes roll back and it's like horror film E, but Jesus E kind of also, and it's all, it's not like that at all. It's very, for me, um, it's very normal. I'm a log very logical person. It's not this weird emotional high for me. It's very normal, my but my mind is unfruitful. It's kind of like my mind is just in neutral in that moment. And then finally, we pick up that it's a form of prayer and of praise. 
I will pray in the Spirit, and I will sing in the Spirit. Think of that line back in Acts chapter 2. We hear them declaring the wonders of God. So what is the content? Well, more than anything, it's a kind of praise to God. And if you've ever been in a church where people sing in the Spirit or sing in other languages, it's actually a beautiful expression of worship back to God. Now, all of that is good stuff. Next, Paul drops a grenade on the church in Corinth. Take a look at 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. If you don't know Paul, he's amazing. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, this is actually, doesn't read like it to you. This is a grenade. So here's what most scholars think. We speculate that the Corinthians most likely assume that Paul does not speak in these other languages because he's never done it in public before. Therefore, again, we speculate, they, if you know anything about the Corinthians, there's a lot of arrogance, a lot of spiritual arrogance in it, which is a tragic shadow side to the charismatic movement at times. They speculate that the Corinthians also most likely assume they are more spiritual than Paul is because they speak in tongues and he does not. So then he just drops this grenade. Oh, actually, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Right, just boom. Right, wait, what he does? I, like him? Really? Paul? That guy? But he never does it in public at all. And then he goes on to say, I just don't do it in public. I would rather speak five intelligible words, Jesus is the Messiah and God, or whatever. Then, and the word there in Greek is the highest number in the Greek language. I don't even know what that is in English. A bajillion, I think is the technical term. I think it has numbers in the upper right-hand corner, and at, at that point, math is involved, and I'm out, okay? But whatever the highest number is, it's then speak a bajillion words in a other language. So Paul's philosophy here, and we're nearing the end, is that basically, listen, I speak in these other languages a lot on a regular basis. It is a vital part of my prayer life and my intimacy with God, but I don't speak in these other languages at the weekly gathering because it's simply no help or very little help to the church as a whole. And as somebody who has been praying in these other languages for many years, I've adopted the same philosophy. It makes a lot of sense to me. I speak in these other languages most every day. I love it but not here. It would just weird most of you out if I were to stand up and move forward in that. But there are times, think of that word edify or build up, there are times when I just feel emotionally or spiritually empty or on fumes or down or sad and I speak in these other languages and it just starts to build me up. Or there are times when um, I just get sucked into the busyness and the hurry and the speed of life in a city with a phone and Wi-Fi and all of that, and my mind is just full of the to-do list and shut off from God's empowering presence. And sometimes when I move into this manifestation and I speak in these other languages, all it does is create space for God in my heart, in my thinking, in my feeling, in my desire. There are also times when I just run out of stuff to pray. Does that happen to any of you? Yeah, you're like, yeah, a minute and a half in. 
Um, like you just, I don't have much else, I don't, or, I don't, or I don't know, or, or I don't let it run out of stuff to pray. I just don't even know what to pray. Life is so hard or it's a mess, or if you're anything like me, you just feel confused half the time by the complexity of the globalized modern world and the human condition and what it means to be in a city like this and follow, like just half the time I just feel confused. And there are moments like that when this is a gift. Paul writes in Romans, the Spirit himself prays for us in groanings that words cannot express. Some, there's debate there, but a lot of scholars, if not most scholars, think that he's referring there to these other languages. And then there are times, and honestly, this is the most common in my experience of it, when I am just so full of love and worship and gratitude to God, and I just need to get it off my chest, and the English language or Apple music, Bethel, whatever music, it just does not cut it. It's just not enough. So at multiple points, driving down Highway 1 the last few days, it was just like every three minutes you'd like gasp for breath. You know what I mean? It was like almost because we fell off a cliff and died. But also <laughs> because it's so beautiful. If you've not made that drive, just do it as soon as you can. It's so beautiful. And I'm there with my son. And what a gift to have a son, to have a relationship with a son, to have the gift of a father who, who was that for me. Like I'm just so full of gratitude and joy and wonder at the creator and his creation that it's just like you just have to spontaneously combust. And again, I'm, not, I'm a pretty logical kind of personality, but there are moments when even I just have to reach out beyond language. It's such a gift in that moment. So I'm with Paul. I would like for every single one of you in the room to speak in these other languages. I would love for all of you to have this as an experience of your intimacy with Jesus. But honestly, I don't see a lot of point for it in the weekly gatherings. Now, that said, it's not wrong or even bad in the weekly gatherings as long as their interpretation. Skip down to 26 and we'll wrap up here. The next part is very technical. It's a rabbinic midrash. Google it. 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, as he starts to come to the end? When you come together... Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. This church is more like 30, 40, 50 people. It's brand new, open-air courtyard somewhere in, you know, Greece, and people would all come with something. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. It's crazy how often people disobey this. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and just speak to himself as God. So if there's nobody there to interpret, just keep it to yourself. Speak it to God. Then notice it's the exact opposite for prophecy. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, test it, interpret it. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, again, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. It's the end goal. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, I love it here, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now, this is Paul's litmus test for should we or should we not operate in this manifestation in the, of the Spirit in the weekly gathering. And it's very simple. Does this edify the church? Does it build up the church? Does it construct the church? Because again, for Paul, everything is about love. What's the opening line of this chapter? Follow the way of love, which comes after a love poem, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if I'm reading this right, Paul essentially seems to permit 
these other languages in the weekly gathering, but not really encourage it. Unlike prophecy, where he says two or three bare minimum, like when you come together, you have to have at least two or three prophecies. With these other languages, it's the exact opposite, two or three at the most, and only then if you have an interpreter. And that, again, because as in Paul's minds, and back to last week's teaching, prophecy is vital to the church and vital to your apprenticeship to Jesus. Honestly, I can't even imagine life where prophecy was not in my experience of Jesus. Just even yesterday, I was just had to podcast Dave's teaching from last week to um, make sure I step into your conversation. And so I went on this nice long walk from Dave's house up to Mount Davidson Matter, up to that cross up there. It's just so beautiful. And it just got me thinking about prophetic words that have recently been spoken over my life. And there was some stuff I was just dealing with yesterday, some inner turmoil and tension, the exact opposite of peace. And just thinking in particular about two prophetic words, one from a friend of mine named Tyler back in May, and one more recently, just brought this deep sense of peace to my heart, like I started to settle, and a sense of clarity and direction for each day. Like, this is what my life is about in this season. This is what I focus on. I, for one, need that. It's so easy for me to get like all wobbly and confused and all over the map. I need this in my life. Tongues or these other languages are a gift, a grace, a blessing, but I don't need them to have an experience of intimacy with Jesus and apprenticeship to him. They're more like an add-on, like the icing on the cake, just this grace. And prophecy does all of this good in the church, whereas for Paul, these other languages are more for you, which is great, but not so much for the community. Now, skip down to the very end, closing line. Here's Paul's summary statement, 39. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, family of God, be eager to prophesy. Want it, desire it, go after it, practice it, study it, research it, get the book, listen to the podcast, re-listen to the podcast. Go for it, ask God for it. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Don't say no to it. Don't quench the spirit, which is ironic how often we go the exact opposite direction of both commands here. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's his summary statement. There it is, my friends. 1 Corinthians 14 and tongues. Now, before we wrap up, and I never get invited to teach again, um, What does all of this mean for you and for me? I think the most basic, just as I've been praying for you and praying for our time together, is just what he said, that we are to eagerly desire the pneumaticos, all the stuff that the Spirit does. He says that, if you're reading through Corinthians, four times. You're like, that sounds familiar. Yes, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. He's driving it home all through these chapters, eagerly desire. I'm guessing that a number of you in the room today, and this is such a safe place for this, in all honesty, you do not eagerly desire this stuff. You read about prophecy or other languages or the interpretation, other than miraculous powers, which we all want. um, You honestly, we don't, there are people in the room and you don't eagerly desire it. Maybe it because of some kind of a spiritual trauma from your past. You were in a church tradition where this was abused and it just ruined it for you. Maybe it's now an emotional trigger even for you. And like the second we even hear that or say that or talk about that, it does something. There's a tension, an anxiety, a weight, a weird like gut level kind of emotional limbic system reaction to it. 
maybe because of a theological tradition that you come from. And this is sad but true. There are lots of really well-meaning people that have found ways around the plain reading of the New Testament. And maybe this just doesn't fit into your theological schema, even though it is right here. And so it's just, there's this mental or theological hang-up. Maybe it's because the way that you're wired is very hyper-rational. And this is San Francisco. Not all of you, but a lot of you are well-educated. And we are educated into a Western secular worldview. We are literally taught to laugh and mock this kind of stuff and to write it off as unintelligent, as pre-modern, as pre-critical, as unsophisticated, as foolish. And so then when we come to reality, the secular worldview is not reality. It is an attempt to live in denial of reality, an attempt to live in denial of God, the ground of being. It's not reality, but it masquerades as reality. It's not. And so often we come to this. For Western, secular, framed or formed people, this is a really tricky one. Same with fasting. Why is fasting, in Jesus' mind, one of the three most important spiritual disciplines in all of church history, basically one of the top and pretty much non-existent in the Western church? Because post-enlightenment people that think we are an autonomous, rational being, which we're not, but that's a whole other teaching, but think we are, we cannot conceive of connecting with God through our stomach. We get everything through the mind. Podcast, book, sermon, teaching, great, we get that. But like not eating breakfast as a way to connect, it's like not even in our worldview. I think tongues is very similar. But there's a whole ask. God wants all of you in relationship with him. Not just your mind. And your mind is key. I love the life of the mind. It's the portal to your whole person. But it's not the only one. Your stomach is another portal to you. Right? There's all sorts of other ways into the reality of God in your life. So for whatever reason, I'm guessing that some of you are just frankly, you don't eagerly desire this at all. You think it's weird. You think it's scary. You think it's funky. Whatever it is. And if that's you... I just want to invite you to take the next step. The beauty of Jesus is that he always meets us where we're at, not where we should be. And some of you, that's where you're at. Others of you are past that. You're ready for this. You want this. Really quickly, there's no how-to in the New Testament. Here's my basic kind of best shot at it. All you need to do is just create space. Just everything with the Spirit is just about creating space. With prophecy, it's just about listening before you pray. So if you come visit my church, what our new normal is, is when we say let's pray, there's always this awkward 20-second silence first. And new people are always like, does nobody want to pray? What's going on? And it's because we're just creating space. Just does the Spirit bring anything to mind to say, to do, to pray for, right? You get into that habit, not just at church, when you're with a server at a restaurant or you're on a road trip, just get into that habit, right? Just create space. And so this might be, like for me, I remember when I began this, I, I literally hiked a mountain and I set a whole day aside to hike this mountain and pray and ask God to do this in my life. And about halfway up, it came to me just a word first and then a phrase. And it was kind of like learning a language, just a few words at a time. You don't need to hike a mountain. Not all of you are as spiritual as me. But um, <laughs> however it comes, just create, that was facetious, create space. 
Secondly, just ask God, God, I want this in my life. And then third, just give it a shot, like step out, just see what comes, even if it's just a word or just a word or two or just a sentence or not even that, a phrase. And then just practice. Think of it like a language. Just practice more and more. And if nothing happens, just go back and repeat steps one through four until you're done. And again, don't, uh, my encouragement to you, whatever your theological frame is, don't just think, I either have this gift or I don't have it. I ask God for it. I don't have it. Done. Move on. No, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. There is a seek and find dynamic with God because he's not just after technical proficiency, he's after relationship and intimacy. So there's something like come up the mountain, come away with me, get up early, fast, pray. There's something to it. You're not earning God's love, but you're moving deeper into relationship. Now, so if you're there, beautiful. There you have it. Have fun this week. Some of you are not even there yet. And so to end with all sorts of just love from the Father for you, I'd love to just pray for you.